Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, known as Small Blocks vs. the World, we tell the story of the 1971 Questor Grand Prix. Held at Ontario Motor Speedway, this was a battle unlike anything the world had ever seen. American Formula A cars taking on the best F1 cars, with the best drivers from all continents coming together in one place. Would it be the greatest showdown in racing, or would it be a giant flop? Let's tell the story. The hottest growing segment in American motorsports right now is Drag and Drive. And the best place to follow it all is in the pages of Sick the Mag. With incredible photography, storytelling, and the inside scoops only those truly in the Drag and Drive world can get, Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of Drag and Drive competition. Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the drag and drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there. Europe's best against America's best. A dream race, as some have called it. 20 drivers from the Formula One Grand Prix circuit have been invited to Ontario Motor Speedway in California to match their skills and cars against 10 of America's top drivers. Among the Grand Prix drivers, three former world champions grace the field. The rest served to enforce the statement. Yes, the rest were there to enforce a statement. And what would that statement be? What would that statement supposed to be? What was it all supposed to sound like? That's what we're going to explore today on this episode about the 1971 Questor Grand Prix. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Loans. And we're going to take an interesting trip back in time, 51 years from this 2022 date that we're making this show. And look at this one-off race. And it is a race that on paper should have been one of the more incredible things anybody saw. In some ways, it was one of the most incredible things anybody that loves racing would have seen in 1971. But was it ultimately a failure or was it a success? And that's what we're going to try to discern really over the course of this discussion that we'll have about the event. So we have to set the scene a little bit here and tell you about what was going on in the 1970s what the goals of this event were, and kind of uh, how it all set itself up. There's a lot of great stories that surround this race, and the first one that needs to be told is about the facility it was held at and the genesis of how it came to exist. So Ontario Motor Speedway opened in August of 1970, and it opened as probably the best and the most premier racing facility ever constructed in the United States. It cost $25.5 million to build, which is close to $200 million in modern money. And it was called the Indianapolis of the West for the simple fact that the main layout of the facility, its main uh, kind of drawing attraction, was a a two-and-a-half-mile oval that was identical in almost every respect to Indianapolis Motor Speedway, except for a couple of small details. One major detail was the fact that the short chutes, meaning the the little short connectors between the long straightaways, were banked at 9 degrees, whereas in Indianapolis they were flat. Secondly, the place was a full one lane wider all the way around than the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. This would eventually allow cars, especially open-wheel cars, to run the oval faster than they could at Indy, and they would set some closed-course speed records and some big marks there uh, in terms of closed-course race car performance in this era. It had everything like a modern racetrack would have. You had uh, an NHRA drag strip included in this facility, which was kind of its own integrated piece. You also had a 3.194-mile, 20-turn road course that was built into the center of the track. And that road course will serve as the platform for the 1971 Questor Grand Prix. It is a 20-turn course, and it was a a very challenging course. You're going to hear the drivers that were competing at the event talk about it and the fact that not only was it challenging, it was laid out in such a way that... um, 
really impressed a lot of the competitors, and these are racers that had seen some of the premier racing facilities on the planet at that time, if not premier, uh, definitely some of the the most uh, well-known, whether we're talking about Spa or we're talking about Silverstone in England or some places like that. It had a stadium club. It had luxury suites. The timing and scoring system was so advanced at Ontario Motor Speedway that it was actually adopted by Formula One and adopted by Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So this place really did push the envelope of what was possible in the construction of a modern racing facility. When it was built in Ontario, California, uh, it was built on farmland. There was nothing around it for miles, and conceivably, there would be nothing around it for miles for a very long time. We'll find out down the road that that was a very, very bad supposition to make. It opened, as I mentioned, in August of 70. They had some uh, celebrity events, and the Pro-Am race was the first thing they had. But the 1970 California 500 put this place on the map. They had 178,000 paid spectators show up. The racetrack itself generated almost $3.5 million of gross revenue from that single event. And it set the stage for what seemed to be an incredibly promising future for this place that would go on to hold the NHRA World Finals. And those events would draw thirty to 50,000 people onto the drag strip side of things. Um, concerts galore. And really a multitude of events that you could hold inside such a cavernous place. It should be mentioned that Indianapolis Motor Speedway has a road course now, but it did not have one 50 years ago. It made this place kind of truly unique. And in order to put the racetrack on the map and, and kind of justify this massive investment, you can understand that the folks that were running the place wanted to do everything they could to um, really not only make the biggest impact, but have a continued impact. So that California 500 really wet the whistle for all of them to say, okay, if we can put 180,000 people in here for what is effectively an IndyCar race and then back that up by putting nearly 100,000 people in there for the NASCAR race, what could we do if we up the ante in terms of the personalities and names and people we were bringing in here from the racing world? And the Questor Grand Prix would kind of answer that question, and they would do so in a way that no other track had ever effectively tried to do. Um, when we need to think about the scope and scale of, of what this race is, the, the proposition here is that you're going to take and invite the best Formula One teams in the world, and you're going to take and invite the best Formula A, or what we would now call Formula 5000 teams in the world, to compete head-to-head -head against each other. And so and we're going to go into the details and the depth of what these two classes and categories are, but we know what Formula One was and always is and always will be. Um, these are the most you know, high-budget, advanced engineering marvels on four wheels. That's the way they were in 1971. It continues to be in a much more extrapolated sense in 2022. Formula A, which we're going to refer to as for the rest of the show as Formula A, is a style of road racing car that became very popular in the United States that visually looked like a Formula One car. A little bit chubbier, if you will, um, a little bit different. But in terms of an uneducated fan, if you put a Formula One car next to a Formula A car, they would notice big, slick tires. All four wheels are kind of hanging out in the breeze. Center steer driving position, single-seat race car, kind of checks all those boxes. The major difference is Formula A cars used 5-liter, 305-cubic-inch pushrod V8s. Now, these were basically like Trans Am style of engines, uh, the likes of which built by Traco and other places. So you had a V8 that made all that beautiful V8 style noise uh, and in theory was making five to 600 horsepower on race fuel uh, tuned up to the max with fuel injection and everything else. They were naturally aspirated. Whereas in the F1 cars, 
at this time in history, you had a three-liter formula. You could have a three-liter V8 or a three-liter V12 or a three-liter V6, but that's what the known quantity on the engine was, a three-liter formula for those cars. So when we think about it just on the very basic level, you think, okay, well, you get a five-liter motor and maybe a slightly less uh, advanced chassis versus a three-liter engine with a more advanced chassis. So maybe you're giving up a little horsepower in the in the, in the F1 car, but are you making it back in handling? And conversely, maybe you're giving up a little handling, but maybe you're making it back in horsepower in the Formula A car. And this was the crux of the discussion that was had by the management and ownership of Ontario Motor Speedway. And what they were trying to do ultimately was to work themselves onto the 1972 Formula One uh, calendar. They wanted a Formula One Grand Prix at Ontario Motor Speedway. Historically speaking, the way you got one of those races was to have a non-points earning race or an exhibition style race the year before and basically prove out the fact that the Formula One cars that came, uh, hopefully they were high enough quality, could run the racetrack and put on a good show and you could put people in the grandstands. And so when we look at this Questor uh, Grand Prix that we're going to talk about, think of it as a giant piece of bait. They had this race as a baiting exercise to get the FIA and the governing body of Formula One to have the U.S. Grand Prix or a second F1 race in the United States. And the reason I think it's fun to tell this story in the context of 2022 is because we have come virtually full circle in that now we have three Formula One races that will be happening in the United States next year. We have a Formula One uh, interest in this country that has begun to just o overrun. It's exploding in popularity here in ways that uh, people in 1972 were still trying to get it to do. In this time in history, you had one U.S. Grand Prix. It was held at Watkins Glen in New York, and that was just kind of how it went. Earlier in the 1950s and 60s, they moved it around a little bit. In fact, they had a Formula One race at Sebring in the 1950s. Then they went out west in 1960 and had it at Riverside. Both the Riverside race and the race in Florida uh, were both flops. The Sebring race and, and Riverside drew no interest and drew no people. So this was, again, an attempt to raise the profile of Grand Prix racing in the United States. And the way to do that was to bolster this idea of us versus them. Our good old American horsepower open wheel cars versus these boutique, one-off, you know, finicky, advanced European cars. And if we take this a step further back, if you've listened to the episode of Dorkomotive I made about the race of two worlds that was held in the late 50s, we saw this concept proven, but it was done in Europe. If you remember, in the 1950s, they had this race of two worlds where uh, European uh, interests paid for the United States drivers, the highest profile racers, to ship their Indy cars over and compete at Monza against F1 cars. And in that exercise, for two years in a row, uh, the Indy cars destroyed the F1 cars. It was a style of racing that did not suit the F1 cars, and it was a style of racing that certainly su suited the big, almost tractor-like roadsters of that era. They were they were not the most advanced cars, but they were so robustly built. They had those Offenhauser engines that would run forever and make the huge horsepower, and they simply were able to outpower and outlast the uh, F1 cars of that time in that style of race at Monza. Now... The things that are changing, of course, the concept is still the same. It's us versus them, American cars versus the European uh, F1 cars. But now we're going to do this on a road course. Uh, we're going to do it in more modern times, and we're going to bring in the greatest names. When you hear the lineup for this event, when I get that far, it really will absolutely blow your mind. 
So kind of understanding the venue and now kind of understanding the concept behind what this event is going to be, one of the things that's so intriguing to me and that has become impossible to figure out is how the genesis of these conversations began and where they started. Because really, when we go back into history, uh, the whole story officially begins on January 12th of 1971. And I'm going to quote you from a story from the Modesto Bee, the newspaper out of Modesto, California, as written by Art Jalotke. And Jalotke writes, The richest road race ever staged in the United States, a Formula One Grand Prix, has been scheduled by Ontario Motor Speedway for March 28th. Ontario Motor Speedway President David B. Lockton made the announcement today and said that the world and American driving champions would be competing for the purse which would exceed $250,000. Lockton said that the invitation list represents the best of all continents, both in drivers and in road racing machinery. It is expected to include former world driving champions Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill, Denny Holm, John Surtees, as well as Indianapolis 500 winners Mario Andretti, Al Unser, Bobby Unser, and A.J. Foyt. The foreign drivers will wheel the same Formula One cars, which they use in their quest for their driving champions on the World Grand Prix stage, such as Ferrari, Lotus, McLaren, Lola, March, Matra, and BRM cars. North American drivers, meanwhile, will drive cars powered by stock block American engines in contrast to the smaller but more exotic Formula One power plants. The Questor Grand Prix, as it will be known, will mark another milestone in the history of the $25 million Speedway, which opened last fall with the California 500 race for Indianapolis-style cars before 180,000 spectators. The Grand Prix will be the fourth major event on the track schedule. It completes working agreements with the four sanctioned bodies, which comprise the Automotive Competition Committee of the United States, known as ACUS. The Sports Clara Club of America will sanction the Grand Prix. The format for the event is yet to be formalized, but the pro race may be divided into two 100-mile heats. Qualifying will be March 26th and 27th. SCCA will also sanction a weekend of regional racing. The program will be run through the SCCA's Cal Club region. The regional entry could be the largest ever as amateur road racing drivers will vie on the same course as the world's driving famous stars. Other contenders for the Grand Prix purse, which should be paid to a 30-car field, should include Jackie Eakes of Belgium, Peter Gethin, Jackie Oliver of England, Chris Amon of New Zealand, Emerson Fittipaldi of Brazil, who won the U.S. Grand Prix at Watkins Glen this year, and Pedro Rodriguez of Mexico, end quote. If it sounds pretty awesome, I mean, that's really because it is. I mean, just think about what was announced. A racetrack, not a sanctioning body, not an organization, but a track itself is saying, we're going to bring all these people together. We're going to take the risk. We're going to pay the most money anybody has ever paid for a road racing event in the United States. And we're going to bring in the best of the best, champions from F1, champions from America, champions of the Indy 500. This is the battle of the network stars of auto racing, something that no one has ever done before. And... The fan base at this point was probably not quite aware of what the disparities were between the two cars, and we're going to get there, but as any good race promotion goes, you never really let the facts get in the way of the buzz you're trying to build before an event. And so that was the case here as well, because these guys went on a real publicity blitz. They spent a lot of money, and as mentioned, the Questor name has come up a few times, and you're already asking, what is Questor? That's another question we have to answer when we get there. But let's start talking about this promotion. You know the size and scale of the racetrack. So we've released this story in January. So what's the next step? How are they going to promote this race? Well, the next step is they're going to use one of the best-known and most beloved American racing drivers in the world to help them get in on this promotional machine. Who is it? It's Dan Gurney. 
At this time in history, Dan Gurney had already retired as a racing driver, but he was still one of the most famous racers in the country. The All-American Racing Team was still in existence. He was building his race cars. He was building engines. And Gurney, outside of Phil Hill, was the only American real hero in Grand Prix racing history to this time. So he was seen as this kind of godly figure. And so if you got Dan Gurney on your side, this would help to build the buzz for the race. So now we look at a copy of the Buckley Post-Herald, the Raleigh Register of Beckley, or rather Beckley Post-Herald, the Raleigh Register of Beckley, West Virginia, on February 6, 1971, with the title, Ontario Grand Prix Has Gurney Hooked. And this story was distributed by the Associated Press. And I quote, Dateline, New York. Dan Gurney has Formula A fever. This is the sort of race that strikes my fancy, says Gurney, of the 200-mile Questor Grand Prix at Ontario, California Motor Speedway, March 28th. It'd be a wonderful opportunity to invite all the European drivers and then smoke them off the road. Gurney, in his 15 years of driving, has beaten the best of the Grand Prix drivers, winning the French Grand Prix twice, the Mexican and Belgian events once each. But when 10 of America's top road race drivers pit their Formula A cars against 20 of Europeans' finest driving Formula One machines in the richest Grand Prix ever, Gurney will be on the sidelines. The 39-year-old veteran who announced his retirement late last year said, If I only hadn't promised everyone I wouldn't race again, this is a dream race. The closest the tall, blonde Californian says he'll come to being part of the $250,000 Invitational event on the 3.2-mile road course is as Honorary Chief Steward and maybe as a car owner. Gurney was named Honorary Chief Steward because of his rapport with Grand Prix drivers and his knowledge of the machines. Not only did he drive Formula 1 and Formula A machines, as well as USAC championship cars, he builds them. And if he could dig up one for the, of 1968 or 1969 vintage, he'd put Bobby Unser or Sweet Savage behind the wheel. But we'd have to make some modifications to include some things we've discovered since we built them, he said. Both Savage and Unser are under contract to drive for Gurney. Gurney concedes the Europeans have a 2-1 to advantage on a numerical basis at the start of the race, but, quote, I'd have to pick a Formula A car to win. End quote. End of story. Now that's Dan Gurney's take. This is the equivalent of having Babe Ruth endorse uh, some sort of an exhibition baseball game you want to put on. For racing fans, for Dan Gurney to stand up in front of a podium and talk about how much he's dreamed to compete at a race like this, and then to say the Formula A cars not only have a chance but should actually be able to smoke the Europeans right off the racetrack, this is a game changer. And it's also part of um, promotion. Because if Dan Gurney was really going to stand up there and say what he probably thought he meant or would, would probably thought deep down in his heart, he likely would not have said the second part about smoking the Europeans off the racetrack. This being said, it all keeps building this whole thing up. It's the Questor Grand Prix. It's, it's being circulated through road racing magazines. It's being circulated through hot rodding magazines. People are beginning to pay attention, and they're asking the right questions. And that question is, can this more basic American car actually hang with and maybe even beat Formula One machinery. How embarrassing would that be for the Formula One guys? How great would it be a triumph for our stock block pushrod engines to stand in the ring with Ferrari engines and Matra engines and incredibly highly engineered overhead cam V12, stuff that is just pure exotica being whooped up on by a small block Chevy or a small block Ford? It almost seems like it would be too good to be true. And as we move this story ahead in just a couple of minutes, you'll understand why it kind of actually was the hottest growing segment in american motorsports right now is drag and drive and the best place to follow it all is in the pages of sick the mag with incredible photography storytelling and the inside scoops only those truly in the drag and drive world can get 
Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of Dragon Drive competition. Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the Dragon Drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there. One of the things that strikes me as so fascinating as we look back at this race is the speed in which the whole thing was put together. Remember, it was announced in January of 1971. They immediately put the PR machine to work to hype it up. And by early March, that machine is in full swing. And we look now to the News Herald of Franklin, Pennsylvania on the 12th of March, 1971. This is in a column called Autosports written by a guy named James Sims. Now, this was not a a wire story. This was not written by the Associated Press or UPI or Reuters. This was a local newspaper with its own auto racing column. And this, uh, this column begins with the title, Race Gets Pushed. And I quote, a much-heralded race on the West Coast set for March 28th may decide the fate of road racing in this country and could even set a precedent for this type of racing in other countries where it is eminently more popular. The Questor Grand Prix at Ontario for Formula One and American Formula A cars will be the richest road race ever held with a purse of now over $275,000. This week, Jackie Stewart, the highest-paid foot in racing, is on a tour of major cities in the U.S. publicizing the unusual race. Unusual is the fact that the two opposing types of formula cars will be campaigned against each other in addition to the top American drivers versus the top foreign drivers. To begin with, the American cars are powered by 305 cubic inch American stock block mass-produced engines, while their foreign Formula 1 cars are powered by sophisticated, delicate, thoroughbred 3-liter engines. In addition to Stewart, the 1969 World Driving Champion, 19 other top foreign car drivers will be pitted against the likes of A.J. Foyt, Mark Donahue, the Unsers, Sweet Savage, a total of 10 American drivers. Stewart sees the race as a chance for everyone in the racing community to help bring motor racing together with a new audience and new sponsors. He added that if the fans, especially families, can be attracted by the European color, the personalities of drivers, and a bit of atmosphere to a comfortable modern race plan, then we're doing a major service to motor racing. Well, here in the eastern United States, we have the annual Grand Prix at Watkins Glen. Most Americans have never been bitten by the Grand Prix racing bug, the old world charm brought to the U.S. by Great Britain, France, Italy, et al. The sponsor for the race is also a bit unique. The Questor Corporation is a Toledo-based conglomerate with worldwide markets in four groupings, automotive, recreation, juvenile, and construction. This is their first association with auto racing. Let's hope that it's a success, end quote. What I really love about this guy's take about the whole event is the fact that he touches on so many of the different potential topics. He talks about the different cars, the drivers from Europe versus the United States, and at the end, he mentions this Questor Corporation, which ultimately is footing the bill for the majority of this entire race. And the name is weird, right? It's 1971. You're wondering, why is there a company named Questor in 1971? And the answer is pretty funny, to the point that newspapers started to actually write about this company. And ultimately, as you'll understand, that's the end goal here. The end goal for Questor is to educate people as to exactly what they are. And as it turns out, a global conglomerate is just that. But its roots are in Toledo, Ohio. In fact, the newspaper story that best kind of sums up the whole situation is actually a column from the San Bernardino County Sun on March 26, 1971, which was the week of the race, which is entitled... What is Questor? It is written by a guy named Ryan Reese. And I quote, What is a Questor Grand Prix? That may be the thought you've been asking yourself. The Grand Prix part is easy since that's a common racing term, but what in the devil is a Questor? 
Well, to answer that tricky question, Questor is the very chic name of the corporation that was formed by the merger of AP Parts Corporation and Dunhill International. AP Parts dealt in auto and building products, and Dunhill has interest in recreation products, baby products, and toys such as Tinker Toys. The reason the name Questor came about was because the company wanted a name that sounded international without using that word. That was explained by the PM Sandy Grieve, the president of the company. So now you know what Questor is, perhaps you're wondering what a company that makes Spalding baseball gloves, baby bottles, and Tinker Toys is doing in auto racing. Quote, We had a problem with trying to create an awareness of the new name, says Grieve. Sponsorship of a sporting event is a natural these days, but Grieve noted very directly, the last thing the world needs is another golf tournament. Nearly 70% of Questor's $264 million in sales in 1970 came from its automotive and recreational product lines, so auto racing was given the nod. Grieve didn't want to sponsor a race car for the very sound reason, you can lose a race if you've got just one car. You cannot lose the race if you sponsor the whole race. Questor has bought a rich race, is the next subheadline. Questor seems to have bought itself a very rich race to be sure. In addition to the $250,000 purse, Questor is sharing promotional expenses with Ontario Motor Speedway. In all, Grieve estimates that his company will have half a million dollars invested in the Questor Grand Prix. Despite having the name plastered all over the place, not one of the cars in the race will have a Questor product on them. Mufflers and the type of shock absorbers Questor makes don't function so well on race cars. Some people think that we're in this thing because of a great desire to see auto, auto racing go to bigger and better things. Frankly, I could care less, said the 41-year-old executive. Questor has a contract that will allow it to share in the profits of the race after it reaches a certain level. Grief said the possibility within three years the race could pay for itself as far as Questor is concerned is favorable. However, that's not the main goal of the sponsorship. Quote, if we don't get recognition through the financial community, I'd consider this whole thing a mistake, Grief said. With the race reaching a nationwide television audience and perhaps another 500,000 actually may do the trick. The name Questor should be pretty well known by next Monday morning. End quote. So now you understand the motivation of the company, which I, I love the guy's attitude, the Grieve guy saying, I really don't care about racing. I just need people to understand the name of this new corporation as Questor and what we do. And we, we don't normally talk in, in 2022 terms about global conglomerates anymore. Certainly they exist. We just use the terms like multinational corporation or holding company or something along those lines. But at the time, conglomerate was kind of a... Uh, was kind of a big word. It wasn't necessarily the, the bad word that some people may perceive it as today. And AP Parts, the founding kind of leg of the company, which opened in the 1920s, is still in business today. You can find them at AP Muffler. They're a huge manufacturer still of exhaust parts. So parts of Questor, if you will, have not gone away. Not to say that all of it hasn't, but if you've ever brought, bought a, a baby bottle by a company called Evenflow or even baby products called Evenflow, they were part of the Questor brand. You heard them talk about Spalding sporting equipment, baseball gloves, golf balls, golf clubs, Spalding, another huge name. It was in the late 50s that the Questor Corporation looked around and thought they needed to diversify themselves in terms of what they held on to. They were afraid of being kind of a one-note band making only exhaust products. And while they were supplying OE manufacturers, there was a period where there were some UAW strikes and their business really got hurt. So they wanted to diversify the company and also kind of uh, make it a little bit more safe financially in terms of not being 100% yoked to the automotive industry. So it's pretty interesting in the fact that they're the ones that ended up you know, footing the bill for this whole thing. And unfortunately, there's no backstory as to how Ontario Motor Speedway and Questor got together other than likely the same agency they used to maybe pick the name was also the one that they used to help I, just get these ideas about how to best promote it. 
auto racing being such a massive part of the culture at the time, maybe not Grand Prix racing, but auto racing in general being such a grand part of the culture, it seemed like a natural fit, and even Grieve uh, tended to agree with that. So we talked earlier in the show about the fact that this race was going to be used as kind of a bait race for the F1 series. Now, this was a non-points-gathering F1 race, and unlike modern times in Formula 1, a typical F1 season throughout most of its history included points-gathering and non-points-gathering races. So to be very blunt about it, the 1971 season uh, was made up of 11 points-gathering races, Uh, Those 11 races were the South African Grand Prix, Spanish Grand Prix, Monaco, the Dutch Grand Prix, French Grand Prix, British Grand Prix, the German Grand Prix, Austrian Grand Prix, Italian Grand Prix, Canadian Grand Prix, and the last race of the season was the United States Grand Prix to be held in Watkins Glen that you heard mentioned earlier uh, when I read that column from the the newspaper in Pennsylvania. Now, there were non-points gathering races in 1971 and in most other years back then. And the simple fact of the non-points gathering races were for these teams to go out there and race for money uh, and race for prizes. It was not going to help them win a world championship, but it was going to help them make laps. It was certainly going to help them add to the coffers. So the non-points gathering races or the non-championship races in 1971 were the Argentine Grand Prix, an event called the Race of Champions we'll talk about, the Questor Grand Prix, the Spring Trophy, the BDRC International Trophy, the Rhein-Polkrennen race at the Hockenheim Ring in June, the International Gold Cup at Olton Park in England, and Brands Hatch, the World Championship victory race in October, which was held after the final points-gathering race of the season. It seems inconceivable in today's world that we would have non-points-gathering Formula One races, right? I mean, they have a long season, begins in the winter, it kind of ends in the winter. Uh, It is the longest season of motorsports and certainly the most taxing when it comes to international travel budgets and everything else and it was still the same way back in 1971 just not quite to the size and scope that it is in 2022 so now that you know that this race is kind of set up as this kind of bait race this this non-points gathering race to kind of illustrate the fact that formula one cars can succeed and or run on this track at ontario motor speedway you can understand the next story i'm going to read you which is from the news herald again in franklin pennsylvania this one in mid-march of 1971 title of it is New Award. I quote, A new award adding to the prestige of North American Formula One racing was announced Monday by the Automobile Competition Committee of the United States, or ACUS, A-C-C-U-S. ACUS is the American motorsport arm of the FIA. They'll present the ACUS Cup to the driver with the best overall record in the Questor Grand Prix, the Grand Prix of Canada, and the Grand Prix of the United States. The Cup will be awarded solely on the basis of performance in the North American Formula One trilogy, and theoretically it is possible for a driver to do poorly in other Formula One races, yet win the AQS trophy with a strong record in this, on this continent. Therefore, AQS has established a separate point system for determining the receipt of this award. The Cup points will be awarded for 1st through 10th finishing positions. Race winners will receive 10 points with 2nd through 10th positions worth declining numbers from 9 down to 2. Total distance covered in the three events would determine the winner in the event of a tie. With no monetary award was indicated with the the trophy, it will nonetheless add incentive to sponsors and drivers alike for the three Formula races. The first set for March 28th will be a test of the American Formula 5000 or Formula A series versus the sophisticated 3-liter Formula 1 cars. What's really impressive to me about this whole operation in terms of the racetrack's promotion of the event is that it was theirs and theirs alone to make and build 
as far as telling these stories and building the storyline and building the intrigue around it. And they centered around one interesting concept in the final weeks of the race to sell as many tickets as possible. And that that concept was called the international conflict. And this international conflict theme was used in newspaper ads to sell tickets. It was used in the radio advertising. And it was actually filtered out to journalists for news stories about the event as well. And as we continue to close in closer and closer to the event, there's a story from the Acadia Tribune in Acadia, California, or Arcadia Tribune from Arcadia, California, the 10th of March, 1971. The title, International Conflict Spices Ontario Questor Grand Prix. The quote, can brute American power beat a FET European technology? That's the question posed not by Vice President Spiro T. Agnew, but by the only American race driver ever to win the World's Drivers' Championship, Phil Hill, 42, of Santa Monica, California. The question will come in the inaugural running of the Questor Grand Prix for European Formula One cars and American Formula A cars on March 28th at Ontario Motor Speedway. People have wondered for years, said Hill, who won the, American, who won the World Championship at the wheel of an Italian Ferrari in 1961, I see it as a real contest between concepts of constructing machinery with the drivers about equal. So it boils down to whether a couple of extra leaders will give the edge to the Americans. Dan Gurney of Costa Mesa, the only American ever to win an international Grand Prix in an American car, views Questor as the dream race. No enticing that he considers so enticing that he considered coming out of retirement for it. The Europeans wouldn't be coming if they didn't expect to win, Gurney said. I feel they may be in for a big surprise from the American Formula A cars. The March 28th event at Ontario Motor Speedway will for the first time pit 3-liter exotic European power plants with double overhead camshafts, fuel injection and all against 5-liter American stock block engines and open-wheel cars with similar chassis and suspension engineering features. The American cars will spot the Europeans about 200 pounds. On the other hand, the Europeans will give away lots of torque and possibly a small piece of horsepower. And the Europeans will have a 2-to-1 edge in the starting field with 20 F1 cars going against 10 Formula A cars in two heats of 100 miles or 55 minutes. Both Phil Hill and Dan Gurney will be involved in the Questor Grand Prix. Hill will be doing color commentary for the national television broadcast, and Gurney will be the honorary starter, as well as the foremost fan of Swede Savage, his 24-year-old protege, who will be driving a Yamaha-sponsored Formula A car. The full field has not been disclosed as of yet. It is expected to include all the active international teams competing for the Formula One championship and 10 top American drivers. Again, it's this, this drumbeat, this pounding of anticipation. Really, they did a fantastic job of forming what the story was. There was absolutely no confusion by the time that this race rolled around about what people were coming to see, which I think is really impressive. And I'm not sure you could even pull that off in 2022. I'm not sure we have enough wherewithal in a racing fan base in this country anymore to understand the difference between these two similar-looking styles of cars. I think if you put Indy cars versus Formula One cars in a modern sense, people would not be able to discern one from the next. Once you told them what they were, maybe they could, but at speed, they may not be able to figure it out. The big difference here, of course, there would be a huge sound difference between these bellowing 5-liter V8s and the very much more high-strung 3-liter engines that were about you know half the displacement size, 305 inches on one side for the V8s, about 180 on the other side for those 3-liter engines. And... 
what is just amazing to me is the fact that you have Jackie Stewart running around the country on a on a promotional tour. You got Dan Gurney beating the drum for the Americans. You got newspapers from all around the country reporting on this. You're going to have national television coverage. You're promoting this Questor sponsor, which is still this kind of amorphous, massive company that makes baby products, owns Dun- Dunhill Tobacco, makes exhaust systems and everything else, and it's gaining traction. The attention level is rising much as the way they would have planned. And one of the big questions starts to come up is the logistics of this race, which many of you may be thinking about now, which is how do they get everybody there? How do they get the cars there? Would the racetrack actually pay to ship all these cars over from Europe? And the answer is yes. And the yes comes in the form of a story from the Times of San Mateo, California, on March 11, 1971, written by a guy named Jack Latimer. And the story is entitled, Automobile Airlift Heads for Southland. Quote, A massive airlift is scheduled for later this month as 20 European Grand Prix cars, drivers, crews, and equipment invade the United States for the $250,000 Questor Grand Prix at Ontario Motor Speedway, March 28th. The airlift, utilizing three airlines, will be conducted out of London and Rome as the world's top Formula One racers head to Southern California for an international showdown. They'll face the top 10 American drivers in cars in a two-heat, 200-mile race over the 3.1-mile, 20-turn Ontario road racing circuit. Quote, by arranging an airlift of this proportion, we're insured for having the finest Grand Prix drivers and cars in the world for this event. That said by David B. Lockton, president of the $25 million Speedway. TWA will transport the drivers, crews, dignitaries, and selective members of the European press aboard a chartered Boeing 707 from London to Ontario International Airport. The flight will leave England on Tuesday, March 23rd, and fly via the polar route. A huge Canadair CL44 cargo plane operated by Tradewinds Airways of London will deliver 18 race cars and equipment from London to Ontario the same day. Two Italian Ferraris will be flown via Pan American World Airways from Rome to Los Angeles International Airport and then trucked to the Speedway. According to Lockton, the basic concept of this race is to pit Europe's best against America's best, and that goal will be accomplished with the airlift. For the first time, Formula One cars and drivers of the international circuit will be mixed with a field of North American Formula A road racing machines on the demanding Ontario course located inside the massive two-and-a-half-mile bank speedway. The invitational list of drivers represents the best of all continents, both in drivers and machinery. Former world champions Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill, Denny Holm, and John Surtees, as well as Indianapolis 500 winners Mario Andretti, Al Unser, Bobby Unser, and A.J. Foyt will be on hand. The foreign contingent will be driving the same Formula One cars they use in the World Championship Grand Prix circuit, such as Ferrari, Lotus, McLaren, Lola, March, Matra, BMC, etc. The North American stars will be driving similar-looking Formula A cars of the Continental Series. These cars are powered by stock-block American engines, in contrast to the smaller but more exotic racing power plants of Formula One. Prominent North Americans on the invitation list include Mark Donahue, Sweet Savage, Ron Grable, George Fulmer, John Cannon, and Peter Revson, end quote. To me, this is one of the most wildly impressive parts of the entire enterprise. The fact that the racetrack itself, obviously with some money from Questor, was footing the bill to fly all these cars from Europe to the United States, not just out of a single place, out of two places. You can you can almost hear Enzo Ferrari t- demanding that his cars be flown out of Rome as opposed to London with the rest of the field. And logistically today, obviously, Formula One teams are flown all over the world to run their particular races. But the idea that in 1971, a singular racetrack would be able to step up to the plate to do this is almost mind boggling. It's phenomenal.
and it shows the belief they had in the promotion. And we start to see some cracks in this idea of what the rivalry will be between the two styles of cars coming the week of the race. And I want to talk a little bit about the scheduling of this event before we get into exactly when the the uh, threads started to pull out in terms of what the mechanical and, and potential rivalry of, of performance would be between these two cars. So I mentioned that there's non-points earning um, F1 races around the world at any given time between the championship races in 1971. Again, 11 championship races and interspersed between them were some of these non-points gathering events. Well, this Questor Grand Prix was scheduled to be held on March 28th, which was effectively a week or really less than a week uh, after that race of champions you heard about being held in England. So already off the top, you have a bit of a squeeze there with some of the biggest names in Formula One who are ultimately going to make a decision and their teams are going to make a decision to forego the rigmarole of going to America. I'm going to detail who didn't show up uh, at this race in a few minutes, but I just want you to understand because we often talk about the, the racing scene in the 60s and how wild it was for these drivers, many of them competing in multiple different series and all styles of different race cars. The scheduling of this event was troubling in two fronts. Now, I mentioned the English front, but what about on the American side? On the American side, it was even worse because in Phoenix, Arizona, on the same week that this event was happening, you had what was the, known as the Jimmy Bryan 150, which was basically an IndyCar race happening in Phoenix, which again is a short flight from Ontario, but it's happening effectively the same time as this event. So if you can picture this, the American drivers, the A.J. Foyts of the world, the Andrettis of the world, the biggest names on the American side are basically flying back and forth over the course of days to qualify in Phoenix and then qualify for this race and then race in Phoenix and then race in this race. Another double down on the schedule that uh, is going to ultimately harm the competition level at this event is the fact that the F1 season had already started. And in fact, Mario Andretti had already won a race during the F1 season. He won the South African Grand Prix, which was one of the earliest races of the year. So the F1 teams have tested and raced already. They have largely sorted out their equipment. The Formula A teams have never even seen a racetrack yet. Their season hasn't started, and it's really so early that many of them hadn't even tested yet. So the Formula A cars, especially the new ones, which many of these were for any given season at the top level, were coming in uh, effectively blind. So the schedule for the event would include Wednesday testing, Thursday qualifying, Friday qualifying, and then racing on Sunday. The reason there was no racing on Saturday was because of the fact that that is when the IndyCar race was going to happen. So drivers that were running at the IndyCar race would, would qualify on uh, basically on Thursday and then run down to Phoenix for Friday, Saturday, and then fly back to compete at this race on Sunday. It's unbelievable to think about in the modern context. And again, that's why it's so fun to look back on this story in 2022, because imagine, uh, and we see it occasionally, uh, Kyle Larson being maybe the main example of a guy who will jump in a sprint car in the middle of the week and then go run a stock car race on the weekend. But imagine doing both of them simultaneously. Uh, really, the only thing we have there is the, you know, the, the Coca-Cola 600 and the Indy 500 that happened on the same day. And a very small number of people, Tony Stewart included, have tried to run them both. Uh, it is an exhausting exercise, and it's the only thing in the modern capable or the modern world that kind of compares to the schedule that many racers the Foyts, the Andrettis, and others were keeping during this race. Why would they do that? Money. We've talked about the purse in this thing, and we're going to tell you just how rich it was when it gets down to finishing places and who won what, but the idea that you could race for this amount of money 
uh, in a sports car or in a, should I say, a road racing environment was really outside the norm in the United States. Yes, the Indy 500 paid huge money, but in a road racing environment, this was something that uh, simply did not happen. So I wanted to get that point made of the schedule and, and why we're going to talk about some of the, the wild stuff that happens here. Now let's move to the Pocono record of Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. This is uh, March 20th, 1971. This is a United Press International story entitled Europeans Face Americans in Questor Grand Prix Race. Now, this runs through basically all the information that you know already. I've drilled into your head where it's happening, what the premise is. But there's some great quotes in here that start to unravel the idea that the Formula A cars will be taking on the Formula One cars on an even footing. And believe it or not, the quotes come from John Cannon, who is a racer that will be competing in the event. And I quote the story. John Cannon, an English-born driver who has made his home nearby near Pasadena for the last five years, doesn't want to throw cold water on the promotion, but says candidly, I'd be very surprised if the first four places aren't Formula One cars. Cannon, who is 32 years old, won the Formula Continental Series last year, but he will be behind the wheel of an STP-sponsored Formula One machine for this race. Quote, I obviously wouldn't be driving a Formula One unless I thought I had a better chance in it. The Questor event will also be the first meeting of the two types of racers. Formula A cars carry 200 more pounds but have an edge in torque. American stock block engines are pitted against small 183 cubic inch European power plants. A former Royal Air Force pilot, Cannon says the extra weight of the Formula A machines will be the telling factor. The Formula 1 is easier to drive, the Formula A is not as good in traffic, and the weight will tell against it. There's going to be an awful lot of stop and starting out there. Although Cannon isn't a U.S. citizen, he considers himself an American as far as a rivalry with European drivers go. It's a very friendly rivalry, but it's obviously a rivalry. A lot of us Americans are going to be out there to prove that we're the Europeans' equal. Cannon thinks the biggest win of his career was his victory, the 1968 Laguna Seca Grand Prix, a Can-Am series event. Of course, if we can win here, this would be a big one. He has a special reason for making a strong showing in Questor. This will be my first race in a Formula One car, and I want to demonstrate what I can do. Yes, I'd like to drive in the European circuit. It strikes me as funny as we look at a guy like Cannon making those comments. You know that Jackie Stewart's been out running around promoting this race and likely has not said anything close to that in order to keep up, if not the storyline, maybe the charade that these Formula A cars will be able to hang with the Formula One cars. But Cannon starts to kind of blow up the entire mystery here by saying, well, you know, I've driven both, or at least this is my, my opinion is the Formula One cars would get the job done. So he's not a very well-known guy, but he's obviously a great racer as he's won on the professional level. So his opinion carries some weight. And one has to wonder, would that story, limited scope as it might have been in a, in a small newspaper, did people start to take a little bit of a different tack as to how they would look at this race? One of the reasons that this thing is uh, really going to start to get some major traction around the country is, believe it or not, the, the racetrack itself starts to make some um, some interesting claims and some claims that will be proven to be 100% false as time goes on. As we look at a story from the Modesto Bee on March 19th, 1971 in a column called Pit Stop, which is, of course, an auto racing column written by a guy named Arkelatke, who I quoted earlier in this show, this is the most um, big-time claim the racetrack is going to make here and one that will 100% haunt it for the rest of its existence as a racing facility. The title is Full-Blown F1 Championship. The story reads, the commission, sp 
The Commission Sportive International, in a precedent-shattering decision, has announced it has awarded the United States a second world championship Formula One Grand Prix. CSI is an arm of the Federation Internationale de l'Automobile, which of course is the FIA, the world governing body for motor racing. All formulas for Grand Prix, GT, and other type of competition are developed by CSI. The new Grand Prix for the United States has been awarded to Ontario Motor Speedway April 9, 1972. OMS is currently in the process of setting up for next weekend's Questor Grand Prix, an invitational race between 20 of Europe's best Formula 1 machines and 10 of the best Formula A cars from the United States. The new Grand Prix for the Ontario Speedway marks the first time in FIA history that a country has been granted more than one race in a season, counting points toward the World's Driver Championship. David Lockton, the president of the $25 million Ontario facility, said, quote, I am delighted with the CSI decision. The United States is certainly big enough for two World's Driver Championship races, and I'm pleased that the CSI is taking this precedent-breaking step. We're not allowing ourselves to speculate right now, commented Marty Roberts the Ontario of the Ontario PR staff. We will have to wait until the Questor Grand Prix next weekend when all the people involved with OMS can sit down together and discuss it. There are many possibilities. Your imagination could go pretty wild with this new Grand Prix. For instance, there are, as soon as Mexico's track is upgraded for safety, four facilities available on the North American continent for road racing. They include Canada, Watkins Glen, and Mexico. Jackie Stewart is enthusiastic about a four-race circuit over here. In fact, I think the drivers have been pushing for this move by CSI because of the tremendous amount of prize money available in this country. In any case, we're not making too many comments about the 1972 event when we have an important race still to be run this season. One has to wonder what the racetrack was thinking by saying this. The fact that uh, they, they gave a date, they said it was approved, they said it was going to happen, and they had not even run the initial as I was calling it, kind of a bait race to even prove that they were capable of doing it once, let alone having another event. And it all is kind of funny when we look at it in the context of 2022, when the United States next season will have multiple Formula One races, of course, Austin, Texas, and then they go to Las Vegas, which is going to be a very, very big deal, and the Miami race. So you have three Formula One races in the United States for 2023, which is something uh, that took uh, 50 years, apparently, to even get close to um, by even having a second one that was promised for Ontario Motor Speedway for the 72 season. So that particular story was very strange when I dug it up because of the fact that the track broke the the third wall down. They broke this promotional wall down and kind of looked ahead past what they were absolutely trying to figure out. There was a lot of great news stories that were published the week of the event about you know the great debate between the European style of race car and the American style of race car, Yankee power, European style, who's going to get the job done, how's it going to happen, this, that, and the other thing. And the idea that um, some of the drivers now really kind of started to speak out gets more pronounced when we look at a newspaper story from the week of the event, basically the day before qualifying was set to start on March 26th of 1971. This is the title by a story named Alan Wolf. And it runs through all the normal data, but then gets quotes from drivers. For instance, Dan Gurney is quoted as saying, the Europeans wouldn't be coming over here unless they thought they had it in the bag, but there is such a thing as Yankee ingenuity, and we could be tricky at times. If I was still racing, I think I'd choose a Formula A car. It's hard to be cubic inches, and they have about 40 or 60 horsepower advantage, but I think the Formula 1 cars will go into the race as a slight favorite. Denny Hume, the former world driving champion, was driving a McLaren Formula One car powered by a Ford Cosworth engine. He said, 
I think the highest Formula 8 finisher will be somewhere around 6th. Even with the superior power, the Ontario course will favor a quicker, more agile car. My Formula 1 should be much faster in the tighter switchback sections because it's about 200 pounds lighter. It's lighter not only because of the base design of the car, but also because the Formula 1 engine get, gets get better gas mileage and will be able to start the race with a lighter load of fuel. Another advantage we have is the Europeans are generally better road racers than the Americans, and this is only because the emphasis in Europe is on road racing instead of ovals. George Fulmer, who won the Permatex 250 one month ago in a stock car at Ontario, will be in a Formula A car, quoted as saying, We have 40 to 60 horsepower over the Europeans, which means we'll have a big edge down the long straight and out of the quarters. We're diversified enough as drivers to adapt to any racing condition, whether it be road racing or oval. Holm is just speaking through his hat. Finally, Jackie Stewart said, I'm going to show that gentleman from Texas, A.J. Foyt, how a long-haired Scotsman can come over here with a nervous, high-strung, delicate car and beat the brawn of America. They're going to cry when I take all their money. Great stuff. It's great stuff when the drivers really started to engage in this thing over the course of the week of the race. And I think it's becoming more and more apparent to the fans that are buying the tickets, to the to the people that are kind of investing themselves in this race, that um, there is there is probably a big, big advantage to being in a Formula One car. And now I think it's time that we need to talk about the actual lineup for this event. Who is going to show up? Who is going to try to qualify? And who actually would be kind of the main draws for this particular contest? And in no particular order, I'm going to read you the lineup here, and it is unbelievable. So get this. If you're any student of racing history, um, you can start counting off the names you recognize, and the legendary names in this group just don't stop. Jackie Stewart, Chris Amon, Jackie Eeks, Denny Holm, Pedro Rodriguez, Graham Hill, Mark Donahue, Joe Seifert, Emerson Fittibaldi, George Fulmer, Ren Weissel, Mario Andretti, Henry Pescarallo, Tony Shank, or rather Tim Shankin from Australia, Sam Posey, John Cannon, Ronnie Peterson, Howden Ganley, Derek Bell, Pete Gethin, Lou Sell, Ron Grable, Bob Bondurant, Pete Revson, uh, Tony Adamowitz, Al Unser, Bobby Unser, Sweet Savage, A.J. Foyt, David Hobbs, and the list goes on and on. Drivers that did not show up because of that race of champions include Francois Sivert, John Surtees, and Jean-Pierre Beltois, uh, the Frenchman who was set to drive a French Matra during the contest. So yeah, that's the lineup of talent. They all showed up outside of a couple of them like Surtees and Beltois, but they were also there to qualify. And during qualifying, things got a little bit weird for Mario Andretti. In fact, it wasn't even qualifying. It was before qualifying began. Andretti suffered a crash on Wednesday, a crash that may have, in some circles, thought to keep him out of the race uh, in any case. So during testing on the Wednesday before qualifying was set to start, the story published called Mario Crash's Car on Eve of Questor Qualifying. Round one of the Europe vs. America controversy will be resolved later today as qualifying opens for the $250,000 Questor Grand Prix. A field of between 15 and 20 Formula 1 and Formula A cars is expected to make trial runs over the Ontario infield road course, with experts anxious to discover which cars can turn in the faster lap between 1 and 5 p.m. The Formula A machines featuring a 305-inch stock block engine are expected to have greater straightaway speed from additional horsepower. Qualifying will be held under FIA international format, whereby three days of qualifying are allotted with a coveted pole position going to the fastest driver in any session. Driver Mario Andretti escaped injury Wednesday when his factory Ferrari spun and hit the wall during a practice run. 
The accident hurt the chances of Andretti, the Nazareth, Pennsylvania point leader in the World Driving Championship. The car suffered damage to its left front suspension, requiring a part to be flown in from Milan, Italy. The part is expected to arrive Friday while Andretti is qualifying for Saturday's Jimmy Bryan 150 USAC Championship race in Phoenix, Arizona. Since he'll be unable to make a qualifying run before Sunday, Andretti will have to start at the back of the 30-car field for the two 100-mile-an-hour 100-mile heats. The day's fastest lap was turned in by Mark Donahue of Pennsylvania at 107.061 miles per hour in a Lola Chevy. So wait a second here. The Europeans that thought they were going to come in here and mop the floor all of a sudden are looking at a guy named Mark Donahue, who they well know, the guy's internationally famous for all the work that he and Roger Penske have done together. But the fast time of the day was turned in by a Formula A car during this practice session before qualifying began. That certainly gave great hope to everybody that was out there and would be coming to the race to root for the Americans, and the promoters had to have loved the fact that during that test day, a Chevy-powered Formula A car led the field. That being said, the following day's headline was not as encouraging. Formula A car is not doing well in Ontario. Quote, There doesn't seem to be much doubt Scotland's Jackie Stewart should have the pole position for Sunday's Questor Grand Prix. The 31-year-old former World Grand Prix champion with shoulder-length hair was the top qualifier. Driving a Terrell Cosworth Ford, Stewart averaged 113.59 miles an hour for one lap in the second of three days of qualifying. He averaged 111.52 on Thursday. The race actually has two 100-mile tests and has been billed as a match between Europe's Formula One cars and America's Formula A machines. It doesn't look like much of a competition. The first seven qualifiers after Friday's runs were Formula One cars. Sam Posey of Sharon, Connecticut was the top Formula A driver in eighth. The number two qualifier was Jackie Eakes of Belgium in a Ferrari 312B with an average speed of 111.57, followed by Joe Seifert of Switzerland moved up to third in his BRM at 111.02. Emerson Fittipaldi of Brazil was next in his Lotus 72 Cosworth Ford at 111.13. Fifth in another Lotus 72 Cosworth Ford was Rand Wiesel of Sweden at 111.05. That story from the UPI, Universal Press International Syndicate, um, was sent out, and that one quoted from the Redlands Fact newspaper of Redlands, California. So that was not very encouraging. Uh, that was not very good news to know that on Wednesday, your Formula A guys are kind of hanging in there, at least Mark Donahue was, and on Thursday... Uh, they were definitely not hanging in there. In fact, they got squashed. Qualifying would go on for another day, and Jackie Stewart would have no problem locking up pole position. Quoting the San Bernardino County Sun, story title, Jackie Stewart maintains Grand Prix pole position. A stiff westerly wind blew away most of the smog late yesterday, and the drivers for Sunday's Questor Grand Prix began casting anxious glances at the darkening skies. The forecast called for rain, and as the smog blew away, it began to look more and more like it would rain. If it does, qualifying will go on, as usual this afternoon, since the race will be held rain or shine. None of the drivers like to race in the rain, but it might rain Sunday, and it go if it does rain today, they will want to get in some practice with rain tires to see how they will react, twisting on the 3.2-mile road course. Scotland's Jackie Stewart held on to the pole position for the second straight day, and it appears he will hold it again today. Qualifying ends at the, after the 1-5 through five qualifying session p.m. today. The race will begin at noon tomorrow in the first of two 100-mile heats. Stewart grabbed the pole on Thursday with an average speed of 111.52 miles an hour. 
Several drivers tried to top that mark yesterday, but no one could. Jackie Eeks of Belgium and a Ferrari came close. Third is Joe Seifert of Switzerland. Emerson Fittipaldi of Brazil was fifth in his Gold Leaf Lotus. Fittipaldi at 24 is the youngest driver in Formula One racing and the first from South America since the great Juan Fangio. He won the U.S. Grand Prix last October. We go down the list, and he, he gets to Sam Posey becoming the first top American qualifier in a Formula 5000 by going 110. Graham Hill of England at a Brabham was ninth fastest at 109. Mark Donahue, Mark Donahue in a Lola Formula 5000 held 10th, but did not run yesterday. He posted a qualifying speed of 110.88 on Thursday. And so this is the way the things were beginning to shape up, and it really wouldn't change that much as we look at what happens over the next couple of hours in that qualifying coverage, which was almost live in the newspapers. Nobody came close to touching Jackie Stewart's speed or time. And if you're Stewart, you kind of had to start laughing your way kind of all the way to the bank at this point. I mean, it wasn't like it was even close regarding the Formula A cars, so they were almost an afterthought. He really just had to concentrate on what the other drivers would do. And the big wild card here, of course, was Mario Andretti because as all this qualifying was going on with the F1 drivers, Andretti was nowhere to be found. The Formula A drivers, many of them were down running that race in Phoenix, but in terms of the Formula 1 guys, everybody got to see each other's hand. They knew how quick they would be. So that was kind of an interesting wrinkle for Jackie Stewart. And the Herald Sun Times of Durham, North Carolina, on March 28, 1971, which was race day, uh, of course, the newspaper is going to be delayed a day on their kind of results, unless you're the West Coast papers that were publishing a morning and afternoon edition. That's how the papers on the West Coast were able to stay up on this thing almost real time is because they would publish their morning edition with a story from the previous day, and their afternoon edition would include an update from that actual day's work. Pretty amazing when you think about it for 52 or 51 years ago. But let's put a let's put a a period, if you will, on qualifying with this story from the Herald Sun Times of Durham, North Carolina, entitled "Give Jackie Stewart an A in Geography." From the Associated Press, Jackie Stewart, rated by many as the best road course driver in the world, is favored to win Sunday's Questor Grand Prix, if for no other reason that he has passed his geography lesson first. Oh, I think I was the first driver to find the proper way around the course, the Scottish driver said and I may have the advantage in that respect, but I find that others will find it too. The quest order to be followed by a second Grand Prix championship race here in April 1972 pairs the regulars from Formula 1 against the regulars from the Sports Car Club of America's Formula, Formula A. We go back to kind of Jackie Stewart's quotes here, and he talks about the fact that Stewart, the 1969 world driving champion, needed only a few laps to solve the tricky 3.2-mile course that winds through the 20-turn infield at Ontario Motor Speedway. He lapped the course at 112 shortly after he took it on Thursday and then increased his speed during two more days of qualifying. His top speed was 113.590. Friday was two, two seconds faster than any other driver. That speed held up through Saturday's final round of time rounds, and the 31-year-old former expert trap shooter will start the race from the pole position. His top speed earned him an extra $2,000. Stewart said he expects his chief opposition to come from the Ferraris of Jackie Eeks of Belgium and U.S. star Mario Andretti from the Lotus cars of Emerson Fittipaldi of Brazil and Wazell of Sweden, as well as the McLaren of Danny Hume of New Zealand and the Matra of Chris Amon, also driving from New Zealand, and the well as the BRM star Swiss veteran Joe Seifert, Mexican Pedro Rodriguez, is also fast in qualifying. Andretti will have to stage a come-from-behind drive if he is to win. The Italian-born 1969 U.S. driving champion will start at the rear of the field 
after crashing his Ferrari in a shakedown run on Wednesday. The car had to be repaired and was unable to post qualifying times. America's hopes for a victory for its Formula A cars appear to lie with Mark Donahue of Pennsylvania and Sam Posey of Sharon, Connecticut. Donahue driving a Lola Chevy and Posey in a Surtees Chevrolet had the best practice laps among the 13 American starters. So now with the buildup complete, the hype machine is completed its job. The tickets have been sold. The people are coming in the gate. It's race day at the 1971 Questor Grand Prix. Before we get into how it all shakes out, we need to go into a little bit more technical detail on these race cars, why they're mismatched, how they're mismatched, and what shot to anybody, anybody in a Formula A have to win this thing. And the answer is here that the math is actually pretty bad when it comes to the Formula A cars, and a few people knew that, especially guys like Dan Gurney, Jackie Stewart, and any of the professional drivers, which, oh, by the way, I read you the lineup. They're all professional drivers, in fact, the greatest of their generation. So why was the Formula A car at such a disadvantage, even with a better engine, meaning horsepower? Well, wheelbase is about the same, tire size about the same, visual looks, aerodynamics, all that stuff is about the same. The Formula, the Formula A car is making between 500 and 550 horsepower. The F1 car is making about 450 to 500 horsepower, give or take. The problem here comes into weight, meaning that the Formula A car weighs 1,350 pounds via regulation. The F1 car weighs 1,168. So despite the lack of horsepower, the F1 car is pulling 2.5 pounds per cubic inch. The Formula A car is pulling closer to 3 pounds per cubic inch depending on how healthy or unhealthy the engine is. And when it comes to a style of racing that requires braking, turning, accelerating, and everything out of the corners, that becomes a major problem. Also, the fuel tanks were smaller on the Formula A cars. This is why that they broke the race into two heats because in a normal situation, the Formula A cars would simply run out of fuel. They were less efficient because they had a larger engine, also because they're heavier and all the other stuff that goes along with it. So the the double down for the F1 cars was not only were they at a race weight uh, almost 200 pounds lighter, it got worse than that because the Formula A cars would have to leave with a full tank of fuel. So they were going on the racetrack at their 1,350-pound race weight. The Formula 1 cars didn't have to use a full tank of fuel. So the 200-pound advantage that they had maybe became 250, maybe became more than that. So when you're talking about road racing cars, an advantage of hundreds of pounds is it's unrecoverable, no matter how big the engine is. Unless you're going to run a 1,000-horsepower engine against somebody that's making 500, these cars were not able to overcome that mechanical disadvantage of the weight that they had to carry around with their small-block engines. Now, that being said... We know the fact that a few of these American drivers were able to put together some good laps. So would the race, because race day, as we know, in any sport is different than qualifying. There's all kinds of stuff that happens on the racetrack, whether it's a stock car race or a Formula One race or even a Formula A race. You have traffic, you have turns, you have people overdriving their cars, you have all kinds of different variables as far as what might happen. So now we're going to delve into some audio, and this is audio from the television broadcast of the 1971 Questor Grand Prix, and I wanted to save it until this point. And we're going to play this audio in sequence, and I'll break in here from time to time and give you some some color on some of this stuff. But really, I want to start out by kind of just setting the scene. You heard a little bit of it at the very top of the show, but what's going to happen here is we're going to hear from some of the drivers that were competing, and let's just say that the Formula A guys, after qualifying, heading into race day, we're lacking slightly 
in enthusiasm. Now comes the Questor Grand Prix. The complete question and the final answer. Or is it? I disagree with the concept because we're trying to uh, evaluate drivers here, certainly, but we're doing it in two different kinds of cars. Okay, I don't think it's a fair um, comparison to make as Europe's best against America's best. I think it's going to prove what we feared all along, which is the higher state of development of the Formula One cars. And so the first voice you heard in that clip was that of Ron Grable, who was a great road racer, a guy who was a American Sedan SCCA champion, actually was also a Formula 5000 or Formula A champion in SCCA. And you could hear his uh, excitement about this idea. And then the next voice you heard was that of Sam Posey, who is a great American road racer and uh, would go on to have a great uh, career in television as well. And, you know, Posey uh, kind of saying, well, I guess this is um, this is what we've all feared in the end. Right. This is uh, this may be exposing something that none of us actually wanted to see or that maybe the racers knew all along. Now, pretty much all these guys were paid drivers, so whether they were going to go there and get waxed or not, they were still going to get some money, So, which ex- which kind of explains why they showed up. But the idea that uh, things are going to be on the up and up seems to be gone right out the window. So let's talk a little bit about the um, differences in the pairs of cars. And again, we go back to some of the audio from the TV broadcast for this. At first, they appear to be the same. Open-wheeled, single-seated, lightweight, a variety similar to American Indianapolis cars but they are as different from each other as they are from the Indy cars. The European Formula One cars are highly sophisticated, expensive racing machines, as individual as their drivers. Powered by eight or 12 cylinder engines, the cars are built exclusively for racing. They're a bit lighter and they're also a bit smaller and we can throw them around a bit more. It will be so much quicker going into the corners and going through the corner. These cars probably are physically less tiring. Mentally, I think you've got to be more alert because everything happens much more quickly in these cars. But physically, um, I think that they take less out of you. The Americans drive cars which compete in the SCCA's Continental 5000 series. Originally and more commonly known as Formula A machines, they use a large American passenger car V8 engine. Heavier and less agile than the European car, the Formula A is a questionable equal. My Formula A car's stock block engine gives more horsepower, but it's higher up in the car. As a result, the car just doesn't, oh, for want of a better term, doesn't hug the road quite as well. So it just looks like the A car's advantage is limited to the straightaway. Uh, the power to weight ratio of the Formula One cars is better than ours, which should mean they will go faster on the straightaway. And because of their uh, lower weight, they're better on the brakes and in the corners. So I don't feel we have an advantage anywhere. Now. Why should it cost so much money to go Formula One racing needlessly when you can go just as fast with a lot less invested in the car? And the Formula One cars are smaller and lighter and uh, probably will be a little faster in the race. But uh, our cars are 10 times cheaper. And that's, I think, a very important part of racing today is the finances. Which is a fantastic point. And one of the most major points that would come out of this is the fact that a guy like Mark Donahue, who was the last voice you heard speaking there, would raise this point that the engines in the F1 cars were 20000 bucks. The engine in his car was about 4500 bucks. Chassis were effectively mass-produced to a degree for the Formula A cars, whereas the chassis in the Formula 1 cars were you know, tailored to the driver. They were built, um, you know, in a boutique style uh, by the likes of Ferrari and Matra and, and Lotus and these other teams, whereas 
there was a, a multitude of people building the chassis for the uh, the Formula A cars in the United States. Almost, you know, in a, I don't want to say mass production, but in a way, as as compared to what a Formula One chassis was of the time and still is, um, kind of on a mass production scale. So that's why the cost was so much lower, and of course, the engine cost being so much lower because it was you know factory produced style engine as opposed to the one offs um, or one off layouts that were being made for a three liter V12 or a three liter V8. Uh, all from these different teams. So, yeah, you, you can hear it in the voices of the American drivers that they kind of know at this point that their goose is cooked. And maybe they knew it all along. But, again, to, to reinforce a point, um, as much as these guys want to kind of play the victim, all of them were paid higher drivers by the teams they were on. So even though they didn't think they had a shot to win the race, they were all going to be collecting a paycheck for their efforts at Ontario Motor Speedway. Now, speaking of that, let's talk about the road course itself. I told you it's 3.19 miles. It is 20 turns. But what did the drivers actually think of it? And this is something, frankly, all of them actually could agree on. An enigma. Which driver? Which car? But yet another factor intervened. Ontario Motor Speedway is a mammoth racetrack. Part oval, part road course. It stretches 3.2 miles. Two long straightaways suck out every RPM the engine can give. 180 miles an hour is easily possible. A featureless labyrinth of infield turns requires constant mind-searing concentration. Well, it's very interesting, and it's a real driver's course. That requires a tremendous amount of learning. I think it's a very good circuit. I think it takes for a lot of mental concentration. From a concentration point of view, it really taxes the head. It really, really hurts the head to run this track. Here's a track which is completely artificial. Somebody laid it out. Uh, it should have been a disaster. Instead, it is one of absolutely the most testing and challenging tracks in the country. For instance, the first turn is a flat-out 175-mile-an-hour turn. And uh, to do that for the distance of the race is going to be pretty tough on a man. And uh, yeah, With some really uh, quite tight corners and very good corners. They're very hard to see uh, because they're so flat. Uh, these corners seem to rush up on you, and it's very hard to find the right lines here and to tell where the apex is. The track is more uh, difficult in this state. It's got several multiple apex turns, which means that you can't just take the turn with one angle of drift or one kind of slide. You have to do two or three or four. Combination that a driver could want. It's got right-handers and left-handers, off-camber, bank corners, uh, rough corners, smooth corners, everything you can possibly do. I think it's a, an excellent driver's course that requires a tremendous amount of learning. One of the things you really have to love when you listen to these audio clips is all those different kind of exhaust notes that are being made in the background as you're listening to cars practicing. I think they got a lot of this audio earlier in the week, so you can hear some of that little rumble of some of the, the Formula A cars, but of course a lot of the screamy engines, uh, the smaller displacement V8s and V12s that were being run in the F1 cars for sure. And it's kind of interesting that across the board that the, the racers loved the racetrack itself. And you know, it's not a place that had a lot of elevation change. You heard you heard Sam Posey say, you know, it's a man-made thing. It's not, you know, like a Laguna Seca or a lime rock that's kind of following the natural curvature of the earth. This was just a flat course. But a flat course that's very challenging and, and kind of interesting in that um, despite the fact that the drivers were all in different equipment and, and suffering their own consequences for that, they all did like the track itself, which was a um, – had to have been something that was buoyed the hopes, if you will, of uh, Ontario Motor Speedway officials in their hunt for this 1972 points-gathering F1 race, which they had told the world that they had already. And 
well, that might have been a little premature. But anyway, we'll get to that in a few minutes. The race itself, um, we'll cut right to the chase and we'll take you through some of this cool audio from the event itself and, and kind of give you the layout of exactly how this is going to go down. And I think at this point you know how it's going to go down, but it's fun to listen to that period audio for sure. The Questor Grand Prix contains the most potent field of drivers and racers ever assembled, forming a multicolored ribbon against Ontario's Dunbrown Circuit. The mix-and-match field takes one last lap at half-throttle. In the next 200 miles, the question will be answered. Building speed towards turn one, Jackie Eats in the fire-red Ferrari number four overwhelms the front runners and slips by on the inside and into the lead. Closely in order are Jackie Stewart, Chris Amon, Dennis Holm, and Graham Hill. <laughs> Further back, all but submerged in a sea of Formula Ones, is Mark Donahue's Formula A in eight. Mario Andretti, number five, has moved up three places in quick pursuit of Donahue. Lap one is history. Handling is paramount at Ontario. A.J. Foyt, who can be counted among the best, is dissatisfied with his Formula A's behavior and calls it a day. But Ontario spares no one. Formula One driver Ronnie Peterson visits the wasteland, losing 10 seconds and three places. The old engine has let go going into turn one. A lot of smoke coming out of the rear of the car in number 19. Graham Hill was running fourth when an oil drive line broke loose, dropping him from the race. Jackie Stewart in the number eight Tyrell stretches his lead to six seconds, averaging better than 109 miles an hour. Jackie Eakes falters while entering turn five. Chris Amon, a scant second or so back, roars by and sets sail for Stewart. immediately pits the Ferrari, pointing to the left front tire. This obviously caused him to slow down, and the Italian crew goes about replacing the blown tire. Eek's exit from the track allows Donahue to move into third, with Andretti doggedly hanging on to his tailpipe. USAC champion Al Unser with failing oil pressure joins a list of six Formula A dropouts. Back on the track, Mario Andretti puts his foot to the floor in a straight line dash to pass Donahue. Andretti is now third with less than half the race to go. Stewart tows a line of lapped cars through turn 14. Andretti appears next in the mixture. Chris Amon is very slow coming through, and at turn 15, Mark Donahue sneaks by. Eakes is back out again, making up lost time. The French Matra is the second Formula One car to suffer tire problems. Amon was second to Stewart, but has now dropped to 10th in the standings. 
few laps remain of the first heat of the Questor Grand Prix. Mario Andretti has overcome a 12th place starting position with a brilliant driving performance to close within fractions of a second on the front-running steward. So we're going to dive back in here for a second and clarify one thing, or at least let you know how I can't clarify one thing. Remember all those news stories I read to you earlier that talked about how because of the crash, Mario Andretti would have to start last in the race. And now we've just been told that he had a 12th place starting position. I have no idea how they did that. I don't know what they, there is no reporting as to why he was able to start in 12th as opposed to having to start 30th. But clearly uh, that was an advantage for him in that we get to this very end of what would be the first you know, half of the race. Really, if it's a two-stage race, this is the end of the first stage. And he is, before the stage is ending, he is you know, milliseconds behind Jackie Stewart. Stewart is driving uh, the wheels off his car, but it is Andretti and that Ferrari 312B that is uh, made up 11 positions. Now, one of the things that needs to be noted as well is Mark Donahue was running as high as third place in his Formula A car. He was actually hanging with the leaders of this race before the thing had fuel delivery problems. So Donahue, as some of the pre-race people, prognosticators, if you will, said, did have the best Formula A entry here, and it was competitive until it ran into some mechanical problems. But can you imagine, you've heard of all the cars that have dropped out or had issues or have been slowed. You know, modern F1 racing, these cars are, you know, I don't want to say they're indestructible, but they're very, very, uh, you know, they're built to such a rigid degree that we don't hear about stuff like this very often. And we've had, in a 30-lap uh, first half of a race, you've had like half the Formula 1 cars have some sort of an issue. So let's get to the very end of this first stage. Can Jackie Stewart hold on and hold off Mario Andretti? The naturalized American citizen driving a European Formula One car has bridged the continents in one brief flash of speed. At this moment, Mario Andretti is the best driver in the best car. Andretti receives a Muskegon piston ring trophy for his first heat victory. Stewart finishes second, Joe Seifert third, Dennis Holm fourth, Eats and Amon next, all Formula One. Mark Donahue dropped from third in a last lap pit stop to investigate fuel transfer problems. He took the checker for ninth, the highest place Formula A machine. Heat one is history, perhaps a prelude of what's to come. Yeah, in a way, we've seen the last three months of promotion have been a prelude about what's to come. But yeah, we are now at the ultimate end of this thing in that the second stage of the race, the final stage is about to begin. You have to wonder, like a guy like Donahue, uh, Posey, even Grable, these guys are champions, they're winners, and they know they're going out there to just get stomped on. They, they Did they protest? Did they even want to go back out again? There's no reports that anybody was kind of stomping around, but clearly they knew what was about to happen. The only real question became, would Jackie Stewart be able to do anything with Mario Andretti? Uh, Andretti from 12 takes the lead, so now you're going to come into the second stage, and the guy's not going to be starting from 12. He's going to be way up front. So let's hear about how this second and final stage of the race goes, and if anybody in a Formula A car can put up any sort of a fight. 
when the thunder of the start dissipates into a train-like echo, Mario Andretti, in Ferrari number five, pulls Stewart, Seaford, and Eats through the serpentine infield. Behind the gap that follows these four, Holm, Eamon, and Donahue bunch together. Andretti's tour up front is brief. Stewart takes command now, as he had done for 26 of the preceding 32 laps. Immediately behind the leaders, Eeks loses traction, spinning wildly in front of Seifert. Seifert gets back in it, but loses third place. Eeks suffers from tire damage and subsequently withdraws from the race with an assortment of problems. Donahue had worked his way into third, then was passed in turn by Eamon and Holm before retiring with the same problem that plagued him at the end of heat one, fuel starvation. This ended a courageous drive and clouded hopes for a Formula A victory. Mario overpowers Stewart. He's the leader again. Ron Grable carries the Formula A banner, but well down in ninth. Chris Amon has closed on Stewart, and this twosome provides some late race action that brings the spectators to their feet. Try as he might, Amon could not get by the modish Scott. Uncontested. Andretti stretches his margin to 12 seconds and with but one lap to go, seems headed for certain victory. Despite his early tangle with Eats, Seifert placed well until suspension failure slowed him abruptly. Andretti is alone at the finish. Alone, but first. Ron Grable took the checker flag for seventh, the highest place Formula A machine. Mario Andretti made a rout of the Questor Grand Prix. Still, it was a contest between internationally known champions fiercely competing with each other in a race of two worlds. The final answer, Mario Andretti. An American driving a European car, the best of both worlds. Mario Andretti is crowned the champion of the Questor Grand Prix. If nothing else, this race has proved that the best man and the best car wins. In addition to the Questor trophy, Andretti pockets over $39,000, the winner's share of more than a quarter million dollars in prizes. He completed each heat in less than one hour, averaging better than 102 miles an hour. In another time, perhaps, the question, who's best, may be asked again. But on this day, Mario Andretti reigns supreme. And Mario did reign supreme on this day. Clearly what he did, coming back with a car that had been repaired from a crash uh, earlier in the week, he goes down and races that 150-miler USAC competition in Phoenix the same weekend, comes back, gets in a car that had never even been tested again, um, and then just gets the job done. It is an astonishing thing to think about this guy and, of course, how diversified his talent was, his ability to drive effectively anything. And what's so impressive about Mario Andretti, to me anyway, is the fact that he is still 
uh, to this day, uh, going out there and messing around in race cars and having fun. And he was just in a McLaren F1 car this year, which is, I guess, ironic in and unto itself. 51 years later, the guy was allowed to make laps in a modern Formula One car. So we can't necessarily put a point on this story yet. The end of the race isn't really the end of the story. And, you know, we can go and read all the stories about Mario Andretti's win, but we know we know he won the event. It was similar but less dramatic than what he did in 1969, of course, at the Indy 500, where he recovered from a crash to go on and win the race uh, for Andy Granatelli. That incredible moment uh, delivering Granatelli something he had uh, dreamed about his entire life. So I will spare you the written reports of the race result because of the fact you know how that went. One thing I need to tell you about, though, is a crash that was effectively ignored in the television coverage but really was very serious in the race, and that was Swede Savage. And this is a story from the day after the race from the Long Beach, California Independent, March 29, 1971. And the, the title is Driver Listed in Serious Condition. And the story is, and I quote, Dave Swede Savage, young protege of racing great Dan Gurney, was unconscious and listed in serious condition Sunday at San Antonio Community Hospital with head injuries suffered during the running of the Questor Grand Prix at Ontario Motor Speedway. Savage, 24, was rushed by ambulance to the track, from the track, rather, after his Eagle Plymouth Ford F Formula A spun off the course on lap 12 during the running of the first heat. The car hit a concrete retaining wall in turn 9 from the rear end, shearing off two tires and causing extensive damage. A tow truck with a doctor aboard drove to the crippled car. Savage had already unfastened his shoulder harness and was getting out of the car when he slumped down onto the seat unconscious. Preliminary reports say he was under the care of neurosurgeons and undergoing a battery of tests to determine if surgery was required. Doctors reported he showed a strong pulse and all signs of life were good. A resident of Santa Ana, Savage started racing quarter midgets, go-karts, and motorcycles before graduating to Can-Am and USAC competition cars. After years of frustration, he won his first championship race, the Bobby Ball 150 at Phoenix International Raceway last November. He is married and the father of one daughter, story written by Alex, or rather Alan Wolf. You know, Sweet Savage would have a star-crossed career. He was very fast. He was very good. He would ultimately die of course, in a racing accident down the road in his career. In this case, he spent months in the hospital, and there's some question as to whether he would ever drive a race car again. He was able to recover from that, but they really did not uh, did not give a lot of credit or credence to that accident. They basically had one or two updates in the newspaper following that story I just read you, and it was just kind of left off the docket, so to speak, in terms of race coverage. And then there's the idea about Questor and the future of this race and the F1 race coming in 1972. And it all started to come apart in July. We run this race in March and it garners a lot of publicity and Questor, you know, gets the naming rights and people are asking what it is. I've read you some newspaper stories that were national talking about the company. But then all of a sudden we get to July, July 19th, 1971, the Redlands Daily Facts prints a story off of the newswire titled Questor Bows Out of Grand Prix OMS Sponsorship. Questor Corporation has withdrawn from sponsorship of the World Championship Grand Prix auto racing event slated for April 9, 1972 at Ontario Motor Speedway. Despite the success of the Questor Grand Prix at Ontario in 1971, said Sandy Grieve, the president of Questor, a variety of new problems, most significant of which are increased costs, are so great as to warrant Questor's withdrawal from the championship of the from the sponsorship of the World Championship Formula One Motor Race. 
Mutual agreement between Questor and Ontario Motor Speedway leading to Questor's withdrawal from the sponsorship was reached with extreme reluctance. End of story. So what does that mean? And there's two real things that this could mean in that uh, they never had a race that they were going to have in April anyway. Questor was unsatisfied by what they were given. Or, as the next news story kind of comes out, all of this stuff is kind of on the table. Questor, race in jeopardy. This from the same day, just a different newspaper, the San Bernardino County Sun. The probability that there will be no Questor race in 1972 is very high. The World Championship Formula One race is still on the racing calendar for Ontario Motor Speedway, but it probably will not be held unless a sponsor is found. Questor Corporation, a company that builds everything from baby bottles to tennis balls, sponsored the $275,000 event last March at Ontario Motor Speedway. However, Questor has begun has been unable to reach agreement for next year's contract with the Grand Prix Formula One Association. The Formula One Association, said Ray Smarts, general manager of Ontario Motor Speedway, displayed complete indifference to the necessity of an early decision-making person on this matter so that Questor could establish market budgets and plan for 1972. Despite the success of the Questor Grand Prix at Ontario, a variety of new problems, most significantly which are increased costs, this is the same quote I'm reading you from the other story, are so great to warrant Questor's withdrawal from sponsorship of the Formula One race. Questor put up an estimated 500000 for the race in 1971. Watkins Glen, New York, will offer the same amount for the U.S. Grand Prix this October. The Formula One Association wanted a reported 300,000-plus expenses for the 1972 race. The Mexico Grand Prix carries a purse of $100,000. Unless a new sponsor is found for the race, it probably will not be held. Rut row. And this really is the beginning of what would be nine years, eight and a half years of spiral to the end of Ontario Motor Speedway. They had about 60,000 people show up for the Questor Grand Prix, which seems incredibly awesome, but it turns out it wasn't. They were expecting another one of their 100,000-plus person crowds, so they were let down with what they brought in, and this would be the story of Ontario Motor Speedway until it closed in December of 1980. They were never able to really get back to the beginning in these huge events. Now, there were several events that did well. The California 500 had a good legacy to it. The NASCAR race did okay. The NHRA would always draw, but it never drew on the level of the stock car or IndyCar guys. They would have Evil Knievel show up and bring 50,000 people in, but the problem is when Evil Knievel shows up and brings in 50,000 people, why do you need to go through all the rigmarole of putting on a race? You know how much trouble they went through to put on this Questor Grand Prix? few weeks before that evil Knievel there and he brought in almost the same crowd to jump over some stuff way less trouble to do that the place would really sustain itself on concerts through the 1970s they ran a lot of different races there but they would have these huge california jam concerts there and bring in hundreds of thousands of people and that was a main source of revenue that kept the place open but unfortunately the death knell for ontario motor speedway really began to happen as sprawl began to really become a big thing in California. The world grew up around Ontario Motor Speedway, and the land that it was sitting on became altogether too valuable. At some points, it was up to $150,000 an acre, and this place sat on hundreds and hundreds of them. So a group called the Chevron Group would buy the place, 
and they would host a last race in 1979, which was a NASCAR stock car race, and that would pretty much be it. And rather, they hosted that race in 1980, and um, it was a race where uh, the race was good. Um, you had a championship for Dale Earnhardt decided there, um, but it really kind of was the swan song, and the crowds had dwindled from what they were in the earlier part of the place's existence, and the world had grown up around it, and it was slated to meet the wrecking ball, and the, and the wrecking ball began to smash it to bits in 1981-ish, right around that area. And it's been turned into a bunch of different stuff. Um, apparently, there are still a couple of vestiges of the racetrack you can see uh, as far as the way areas are sculpted. Um, there is, a, I guess, a monument built as to where the winter circle used to be. But Ontario Motor Speedway had a, a very short 10-year lifespan. And by the time 1971, the end of that season rolled around, the money started to get real tight, and it never got looser from there. Trying to pay the bills and the bonds and the debts on the place was just a choking enterprise that nobody really ended up having a good answer for or a good answer to. And so that's the story of Ontario Motor Speedway in a nutshell, but also the story of the 1971 Questor Grand Prix, another notch in the belt for Emerson Fittipaldi, certainly a notch in the belt for the world of Formula One, and that was the only time Formula One cars were ever placed in a direct head-to-head competition with another form of race car. The Formula A cars stood in the ring as best they could, but what ended up happening was the inevitable. And the inevitable was the budgets and the technology and the superior power-to-weight ratios and superior engineering budgets ended up triumphing in this particular scenario. Guys like Mark Donahue and Roger Penske, who raced at a level that was on par with these Formula One teams, got scuttled by just some dumb, small problems. If they had not had a fuel delivery problem, it stands to reason that Donahue probably would have finished somewhere in the top three, minimum top five. But when we go back and look at the final results, the best finisher was Ron Grable, and he was way back in time. He was not back that bad in position to finish seventh, but he was way back in time. It was a distant seventh. It was not a contesting seventh. Still a cool story. Still a cool moment in time. And again, in the context of 2022, when we see a Formula One series that has begun for the first time really in the last couple of years, obviously, to capture the attention of an American audience and now have three events on this in this country, something that would have been unfathomable, clearly, 50 years ago, it's pretty wild. The size of these events, too, is insane. You're talking about half a million people attending Austin, massive, massive crowds in Miami, and, of course, the Las Vegas race is coming next year. We'll have a massive crowd as well as massive everything else. There are hotels now offering million-dollar packages for the weekend. People will be spending tens of thousands of dollars for hotel rooms that overlook the course. People will be sitting in grandstands built effectively over the Bellagio Fountains. It will be perhaps the grandest spectacle the sport has ever seen, and it's a sport of many grand spectacles. It's a long way off from when Formula One cars were racing in a parking lot at Caesars Palace in the early 80s, and frankly, that is another story for another day. But in this case, we end with this. You might not have loved the way this one ended with the Formula A cars getting stomped, but boy, you have to respect the fact they got in the ring and the fact that a small block, stock block V8 engine 
could only annoy and couldn't beat an F1 car is still pretty cool in my book. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dorkamoto Podcast. We'll be back soon with more racing history and more fun here at Dorkamotive. I'm Brian Loans. We'll see you next time. The hottest growing segment in American motorsports right now is Drag and Drive. And the best place to follow it all is in the pages of Sick the Mag. With incredible photography, storytelling, and the inside scoops only those truly in the Drag and Drive world can get, Sick the Mag is a must-have subscription for anyone who loves the adventure, speed, and hard-fought world of Drag and Drive competition. Visit SickTheMagazine.com to get your subscription today. That's SickTheMagazine.com. Get your subscription today for your friends or family that love the Drag and Drive world. There's no better coverage, there's no better place, and always remember, it's a sick world out there.